everybody, and welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell. With me, as always, over the line is a man who would never get booked for a rainbow flick. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Greetings, Taylor. How are you on this fine day? Did you have a wonderful weekend? Did you rainbow flick anyone? And did you watch that huge game on Sunday? Yes, I'm talking about City Spurs. <laughs> I've watched it now. I did not watch it in the moment. I was up in D.C. Uh, then I was watching the Super Bowl. But this morning, I, I woke up bright and early to watch all of the games we're going to be talking about. And I watched most of them in their entirety, which was an interesting process. Uh, wow. So no rainbow flicks for me, although I did make sure to watch that footage again to make sure I had seen it. Because uh, I think the first time I saw the flick, was last night through like bloodshot eyes. I wasn't entirely sure if it was real. It was indeed Neymar uh, booked for an altercation with referee Jerome Brissard uh, in PSG's 5-0 win over Montpellier. Ryan, uh, did that seem a bit uh, strange to you, the way this all went down? It did. I mean, we don't know what the referee said and what his beef was exactly. If it was just like, settle down, stop doing yeah. amazing tricks, then that's a bit harsh on Neymar, I think, because he knows what Neymar is. But I don't know. I found the whole thing entertaining. I also found it very entertaining. There was a moment when Neymar was fouled yep. uh, and he got up and immediately dribbled past the person who fouled him. That was enjoyable. And also, I don't know if you saw Tay-Tay, it was his birthday party last night in Paris. And I he had not. an all-white theme. Everyone was wearing white suits. It was very Miami. I enjoyed it very much. What um, an interesting day for Neymar. <laughs> very, he, had, he had a mixed day. His birthday is not until um, Wednesday, I believe. I did look this up as well. But a happy birthday to Neymar. Um, I hope you're having a wonderful time in Paris. I, I've got to say, Taylor, before we start recording today, though, I've had a bit of a difficult morning with a domestic incident, which I'd like to share, if you, if you don't mind. I know this is a safe space. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah, please, share away. Let's so, hear about it. Unloading the dishwasher this morning, I was putting a mug back in a cupboard that mug slipped out of my hand, hit, hit another mug, which Uh-oh. was full of tea, Uh-oh. boiling hot tea, which then spilled all over an open drawer, which was full of other mugs. Oh, no. So have you been so, doing some mug cleaning today? This is every British person's nightmare, wasting tea and seeing <laughs> mugs unnecessarily stained. So uh, I, I hope you can appreciate you and put me in your thoughts at this difficult time. Uh, first of all, I will do that because I have done that. And with that in mind, my, my second point, my, which is a question for you, is did you exacerbate the situation when the mug was falling? Because that's something I would do is like in trying to save the tea or save the mug, I would then knock it into the drawer. Although in my world, it would have been full of like things that absolutely could not get wet that are now soaked in tea <laughs> yeah it was something like that the, the one thing I'm, i can remember specifically doing was this noise i always do when i'm in a panic it was like a ah! like that <laughs> and i'm the only one in the house and it's still it was still that noise came out of my mouth and amazingly the mug in my hand shattered the one it hit is perfect didn't break <laughs> oh no w- 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 are you going to be able to piece together the shattered mug or is that it for that one it was my favorite and it is now in the trash i'm oh, upset no. I was I was so, hoping I for a more like ceremonial burial, but uh, you know, trash works. That's fine. Tra- trash is trash is how we do it around here. Fish go down the toilet. I assumed it was going to be like wrapped in a in a Union Jack with like a Twinings <laughs> seal or something like that. But instead, I guess into the trash. That works too. Well, I know this country's used to wasting tea by throwing it in harbors, so at least mine was <laughs> accidental. Um, what, what I will say is, um, uh, I, if I were a Chelsea goalkeeper, Taylor, I know I would be dropped this weekend for, for that for that kind of behavior. That's all I'll say. Well, since you've done that, do you want to start with Leicester's uh, 2-2 draw with Chelsea, or should we uh, talk about the aforementioned Spurs City game? I don't think I should be in charge of anything right now. I'm in two emotional states. Right. You choose which game. Since you're too emotional, let's uh, start with uh, Spurs City, a game which you noted in the show notes uh, or in our uh, shared document uh, had everything, and I think you are correct. Uh, it did not have goals for Man City, which is not something I would have expected, especially at halftime. This seemed like it was going to be Man City's game. It seemed like they had found a way through. They missed the penalty, but you still think they're going to be able to make something happen. Then there's the red card. We'll talk about that. Then there's the two goals. We'll certainly talk about those. And then there's a win for Tottenham. I think Jose Mourinho's first in the league against Pep Guardiola, at least uh, in recent times, at least in the Premier League. Uh, Ryan, where do you want to start with this one? What were the biggest talking points for you? Uh, Well, firstly and foremostly, foremostly, not a Mm -hmm. word, um, this did not go how I thought it would at all. I thought Tottenham were going to get battered in this game and it went completely the opposite way. But just to to recap, this game really did have everything. We had an amazing, a really good goal from a debutant player. We had a missed penalty. We had VAR controversy because of course we do. It's a day ending in Y. We had the post (laughs) and the crossbar hit, including a defender hitting his own crossbar in stoppage time. We had a hilarious open goal miss. We had a red card for a Man City player doing a tactical foul, which is a unicorn Mm -hmm. in this game. We had Raheem Sterling villainy. We had 
had Mike Dean doing Mike Dean things. We had a Mourinho gifable moment. We had City having 500 shots and not scoring a goal. I can't think what this game didn't have. It was wonderful. Well, let's start with some of the controversial moments then, which this game had plenty of, as you've said. Let's start with uh, the Raheem Sterling incident with Dele Alli. Uh, he go, they're both going for the ball. Sterling uh, misses the ball, ends up on Dele Alli's ankle. Uh, it is reviewed, no red card given. Ryan, was that a justifiable decision, or do you think it should have been red? I think a red could have been given in that circumstance. Certainly. I think Obviously, we're about to agree on this entirely, based on the, the way you just phrased that. The comparison is with the Aubameyang one at Crystal right. Palace. Was it Max Meyer a few weeks ago? Yeah, I think so. Where it was, it, it looked basically the same. And I've heard some people saying that, oh, because they're, they're England teammates, Ali uh, and Sterling, that there wasn't any malice in it. And I'm thinking, I don't know if that's a good enough reason yeah. to not give a red card in this circumstance. Yeah, that's not it how that works. Pretty, I don't it think. was a poten- I mean, at the end of the day, that was a potential career-ending challenge. Mm-hmm. It was awful. It so was. why not punish for it? It was, and I and I think that the Obama Yang uh, incident is the one to connect it to because for me, you watch that replay, you watch it in a vacuum, and you see Sterling's clearly going for the ball. Uh, he gets there a little bit late, and instead he lands on Dele Ali, who got the ball first. And so I think in that moment, a yellow card would have been appropriate. And it wasn't as like, I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was as vicious as it looks when you watch it 40 different times. But to your point, then you go back and watch the Aubameyang one, and it is very, 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 very similar. And if that was a red, I then understand why people feel like this absolutely should have been a red too. Yeah. So it is that little bit of inconsistency that was uh, somewhat confusing for me. Yeah, definitely. And we, we should probably say how this wasn't exactly a vintage performance for Sterling in mm-hmm. other ways as well. I mean, in the build-up to the penalty, which I'm sure we'll get to, he sort of fluffed his lines with yes, a shot did. as well. He just doesn't look very confident, doesn't look 100% fit. Another reason for English people to worry about Euro 2020, I would suggest. <laughs> Yet another. Yeah, there, there, are many, there are many reasons for that. Um, and yeah, you're right, because we saw Sterling in this incident. We saw him uh, square one to Gundogan in what probably should have been a goal, but he plays it a little bit probably. wide, a little bit in front of Gundogan. He can't get on the end of it. What were you about to say? I said probably in a very yeah. high pitch voice. <laughs> yeah, so that was not great. Then there's the incident after the penalty, uh, when the penalty is saved by Yoris. Welcome back, Hugo. Uh, that maybe could have been a yellow for diving there. Um, let's break that whole incident down for a second. Uh, starting with the fact that it took, I think, 48 minutes for VAR to come back and say, never mind, we want this to be a penalty. <laughs> I wasn't as upset about this one. I felt like the NBC Sports uh, guys who were doing the game live, uh, I believe it was uh, Arlo White and Graham Lassau, so, made the argument that like the ball didn't stop, play didn't stop, so there was no real opportunity for Mike Dean to, to blow the whistle to say, like, hey, we need to take a look at this one. Instead, eventually, when the ball goes all the way back, then he blows the whistle, p- puts the finger to the ear, draws the box, points to the spot, never takes a look at the monitor, does give the penalty, but the kind of timing combined with him not really looking, or not looking at all at the replay, had some people confused by this one. Jose Mourinho was quite bemused by this. Ryan, where were you on this whole situation? Um, I, I didn't mind terribly that it was a two-minute distance between the mm-hmm. incident and the VAR um, decision. I do. I, I obviously understand the fact that what if the other team had scored in that yeah. in that passage of play? No, sorry, no goal. Got to go back up the end, and it's a penalty. So that's a huge problem. I do have a problem with the not looking at the monitor because we've seen now there is a directive that the referees can look at a monitor. I think it was in the Palace Sheffield United game where the ref did go and mm-hmm. uh, look and make it ended up making a correct call. I think to rescind uh, a red card for Joe Ward. In that, in that game. Um, so I think that's something that should have happened looking at the monitor, maybe a little sooner than it did happen. But yeah, I think the main issue for me is just that um, it, it should have, it, it would have been a huge problem if a goal had gone in at the other end. And the, mm-hmm. the official uh, Premier League explanation, Tay was when the ball was in a neutral area, the VAR recommend that the referee stop play and award the penalty. It was. It seemed fairly neutral during certain instances during that two-minute period. Mm-hmm. I suggest before before the decision was made. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure either. Maybe that was just them also like wanting to be absolutely certain before they told Mike Dean that he needed to award the penalty. Just because as he kept gesturing, he got ball. He got ball. I think Mike Dean very much thought that Sergio Aurier got mostly ball. Maybe a little bit of Sergio Aguero after the fact. So I think they wanted to be extra certain before they said, no, you should award this penalty. Still confusing to me why he doesn't have to go look at it or why he chooses not to go look at it. But either way, I'm not as confused by that whole situation, even though some people certainly were. Uh, it 
maybe felt for a moment like a little bit of a ball-don't-lie situation when Gundogan takes the penalty, doesn't take it very well, penalty is saved, but it spills loose. Then it's Yuris versus uh, Sergio, or, excuse me, not Sergio Aguero, Raheem Sterling. Mm. And now we have another incident when the commentators thought it was going to be a penalty. It looked like there was a little bit of contact from Yuris on Sterling. Then there's the debate about, oh, he was already going down. He was making it look like a penalty. He was embellishing the contact. And again, Ryan, I'm going to put this to you. Where are you on this one? Because from the replays I've seen, I can understand both arguments on this. Taylor, I broke a tea mug this morning. Why are you giving me all these difficult <laughs> questions so far? But, but seriously, it was, um, it was, it was, a, I could see it given both mm-hmm. ways, which is a real cop out. I know that, but it's really uh, not. I, I, uh, I absolutely agree with you, honestly, <laughs> because I've seen screen grabs of it where it looks like Sterling is kind of leaning back when he goes, when he's first touched by Larice. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you can say he wasn't already going down, but then you look at it again and from different angles and it does look like he was. My take on it is that it was, a second after a penalty was taken yeah. and it makes it somehow less likely in the referee's mind to give another. If that was a separate incident in the normal run of play, I think that could have quite easily been given as a penalty. And I don't think that makes it right, but that just feels like how it feels to me. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense to me because if this had been given as a penalty, if the whistle goes, he points back to the spot and says, yep, that's a penalty, there was contact there, I think the replays would show that that might have been the case. And so I wouldn't have an issue with that. But I don't have an issue with them sort of going with the ruling on the field. Mike Dean says no penalty, but I think there was co- at least enough contact that maybe it throws off Raheem Sterling, maybe. But either way, I think it's correct to say no penalty and uh, no yellow card either for Sterling for diving. I did want to mention one more thing in this uh, sequence that I thought was especially interesting was um, as Gundogan goes to take the penalty, you can see all the Tottenham players are kind of at the top of the 18, as they would be, and you see Alderweireld telling everyone, do not enter the box prematurely. And I think he knows that they're going to check that one. We don't want this one called back. Maybe he just knew that Yuris was going to save it. Maybe he knew Gundogan was going to miss. Maybe Gundogan told everybody he was going to miss. Who knows? But either way, I just loved Alderweireld gesturing and screaming at his teammates, do not encroach, do not encroach, which is maybe partially why Raheem Sterling is able to get to the ball first. He's already at like a full sprint as the as the, the kick is taken. But either way, I did enjoy that aspect of Tottenham not having to have it uh, called back and retaken because of infringement. So you just said there maybe Gundogan told everyone he's going to miss. <laughs> so you're in on my conspiracy theory. I, I, was, I was alluding to that, yes. You're in my conspiracy theory that Pep doesn't want his players to score anymore. So uh, I, I say this in jest, but it does lead to a more serious point, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Midweek, we saw you know that disastrous um, moment where David Silva passed when he quite clearly should have put the ball in mm-hmm. the net. And we had this incident again with Gundogan getting the ball after a... Uh, you know, plenty of errors mm-hmm. with Tanganga running into Larice and the ball ending up at Gundogan's feet. And there's four City players. When you look at the reverse angle from behind the goal, there are four City players basically hovering on the six-yard box and Gundogan manages to put it wide. I mean, you, <laughs> I don't generally think Pep doesn't want his players to score, although I did allude last week to the uh, Spanish art project, which the Guardian used to refer to with Pep's Barcelona, where they thought passing was more important than scoring. And you, <laughs> you could allude back to that. But I think that the greater point here, Taylor, is an important one, is that Man City create more chances than any of their opponents when they play them, but they're not putting them away. And, to- and they tend to concede the chances. But, sorry, they tend to get scored on and the mm-hmm. chances they do concede. Um, there's a big stat going around this season in the two games. City have had 47 shots against Tottenham to Tottenham's six. City earned one point from those games. Spurs yeah. have earned four points from those games. Now, it, it, I was thinking, what did Tottenham do right in this game? And I think a lot of it is luck, to be honest. Luck that these, you know... Chances have hit post, chances have gone wide. Um, and even Jose Mourinho admitted after the game that it was uh, they were lucky. And I think he said the first goal was, and I quote, God's will that it went in. Hmm? Okay. Um, All right. So, so, Didn't I, know God was his first fan. That's good to know. <laughs> he is, apparently. Like, mm. He likes Josie a lot as well. Or he's just tired of Pep, one or the other. <laughs> so, I mean, what... So what, mm-hmm. did, what did Spurs do right? Let's try and talk about that. Maybe Larice had a good performance. I, I could see that Tanganga was good at um, putting Mares on his wrong foot, on his right foot quite a lot. I think they were fairly, mm-hmm. fairly solid most of the time in keeping City pin back, although they did let them have a lot of shots in dangerous areas. Um, you, could look, you could say even Sterling or Kevin De Bruyne having their timing off and not being quite right, that mm-hmm. could be down to the pressure that Spurs were applying. And, you know, they come away with 32% possession and... 
uh, and got a win out of yeah. it against Man City. So they're, they're obviously doing something right. Maybe it's a higher power that I don't understand is uh, is doing this. But there's inherently a problem with this City team, and they're not converting chances. And there's a good piece on the Athletic uh, that Sam Lee's put up. Actually, Sam Lee's the Manchester City correspondent. He replaced the guy who was doing Man City for them last year. I don't know what happened to him. He was very handsome. He was crap. I understand though. Um, And he's he's put a good piece up uh, today about uh, analysing 20 of Manchester City's missed chances in 2020. So I recommend you guys uh, take a look through that on The Athletic. It it includes this chance. It includes um, the the silver pass and a a sterling one against Man United as well. It it just seems like... Man City, we know what we know what Pep done, has done to this team. You know, driving the fullbacks down the flanks, getting the ball to the byline, cutting it back, putting it in the goal. You know, getting goal scoring down to its simplest essence. And it seems like the, the attacking players are just not performing when getting yeah. on the end of those balls. And there's something wrong there. It's not that they're bad players. Is it a confidence mm-hmm. thing? I don't know. What I, it is. I think I think there's a couple different things at play, in my opinion. I, I think you could look. There are moments when they would cut to Pep Guardiola on the sidelines in this game when it was still nil nil, and he just looked like. Ugh. I'm frustrated. I'm kind of over it. I'm kind of baffled by what's happening here. And you and like he didn't have that that next level intensity that I think we've come to expect from Pep Guardiola. Instead, he seemed much more uh, sort of frustrated by the situation. And I think his players were the reason for that because there was that lack of efficiency. They didn't have that precision we've come to expect from them. Even those moments when they would pass their way through Spurs, they would then kind of fluff the chance or not take it or maybe not pass when in the past we would have seen them like complete one more to have the kind of FIFA tap-in goal. And those little inconsistencies, I think, really cause City problems because... To their credit, like Jose Mourinho's uh, Tottenham side had, were very defensive. They counterattacked very well. They executed the game plan they wanted to execute. And it's very difficult to do what they did, don't get me wrong. Sure. But we're still talking about a Spurs team that conceded a penalty, could have easily been down 1-0 or more at halftime. And and I think if you go back and watch and you listen to like the halftime commentary, the consensus is like Spurs need to figure out something because City are going to find a way through. They seem to have the momentum. And I think what it comes down to is City making stupid mistakes. Um, some of those would be the misses we've talked about, but other ones would be, let's say, that double yellow to Zinchenko. It starts with him getting involved in the scrum uh, after the penalty is given, taken, saved, and then not given uh, for Sterling. When Yoris comes out and kind of accuses Sterling, there's the clash. And it is sort of dealt with at this point. Like, you have all parties on their respective sides. You have, like, the Spurs players on one side, City players on the other. They're still talking. And Zinchenko comes running in and gets into it with the Spurs players. He gets shoved back by Vertonghen. He did not need to do that. There was no reason for him to be there. But because of that, he gets his first yellow. And that right there sets up the second yellow later in the game, and that comes from a Man City corner that uh, Riyad Mahrez is trying to hit and basically just plays it straight to Harry Winks, who counterattacks. Zinchenko has to make a play. He's very, very obvious about it. The replay shows Zinchenko, Zinchenko is just looking at Harry Winks, not looking at the ball. So you have this tactical foul. You have the red card. You don't usually see that. It was sort of a, a, a sweet moment uh, for people who've been frustrated by the way City sort of cynically break things down. But yeah. the sort of individual mistakes there end up with City being a man down. And at that point, you can see Tottenham getting that momentum. And it's worth noting that both of their goals come after City are down to 10 men and don't really have answers for some of what Tottenham starts bringing at them. So I think it's Tottenham played their game, but I think definitely got a little bit fortunate. And then Man City played their game, but didn't get fortunate and then also didn't help themselves. It's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a season ticket holder at the, at the new stadium there, and he said after that moment when they went down to ten men, there was just a huge sea change in the stadium. The atmosphere completely changed. And he said from that moment on, it was the best atmosphere he'd seen at that stadium. And it's interesting to think how much a positive uh, home crowd, a partisan crowd, mm-hmm. can really help a team go on. I yeah. think that may have played into it a little bit as well. And just on the, on the uh, subject of the corners there, maybe there were some um, Christian Eriksen tributes going in, because I saw a few Man City yeah. corners that didn't clear the first man. So there was, uh, mm. may, maybe they were uh, uh, paying tribute to the man who's now gone to Premier League FC, a.k.a. into Milan. But also on that, um, <laughs> that's in Zinchenko's second yellow. Mm-hmm. It's... I've I seen people arguing that that should never have been a yellow. It's shoulder to shoulder. You, you, you're allowed to do a shoulder to shoulder. You, you know, But I think you're not allowed it in the context of when the ball is quite far away from you and nope. when you're not even... He's not looking at the ball. No, not you at all. You see Zinchenko is looking yeah. at the player and going into him with his shoulder. There's no intention of playing the ball whatsoever. I think that kind of changes the context. I think the shoulder to shoulder rule is when you're both sort of wrestling for a ball that's at one of your feet. 
Yeah, it's not quite I, the same I, here. I agree entirely because I think that maybe a player who is more cynical but more polished at being cynical is better about sort of making that look shoulder-to-shoulder, making it look like, oh, it's just kind of an unavoidable collision, whereas, yeah, every part of that was very clear that Zinchenko was just like, well, uh, here's my body flying into your body. I hope your body stops moving because otherwise we're in trouble. (laughs) So I think that's an individual mistake, and then you look at both of the goals uh, for Spurs – like it's it's great individual moments the Bergwijn goal especially I don't think I don't know how you could have a better debut than to score that goal chest and then the volley uh, and it's a, Holland, he'll tell you that's a very good point um, but it's a great ball from Lucas Mora it's a great like disguised little sort of chipped pass in that um, Bergwijn is able to chest and then volley first time it's a lovely goal but it comes mm-hmm. from Kyle Walker trying to head the ball or excuse me trying to like volley the ball clear and he plays it straight to Lucas Mora that's not really the best way to clear it when you put it to the feet of like a very creative player who is very good at finding players in space. So I think that's a mistake. And then you go to the, the second goal where obviously uh, Otamendi is at fault here because he yeah. decides, I don't want to mark the guy who's closest to the goal and is the obvious goal threat. I want to mark the other guy, Eric Lamella, who's further away from goal and could probably easily be defended if he does get the ball. But when Otamendi steps to Lamella, that opens up that space. In goes uh, Hyungmin Son, in goes the ball in the back of the net, and it's 2-0. And it is those sort of individual mistakes and that lack of focus coming back to bite Man City in the end. Yeah, definitely. I think you're, you're right. Both goals were definitely uh, defensive errors, I, I would argue. Uh, not, not just when you, when you mentioned the first goal, it's not just that bad, um, who was it, Walker, who did the pass out, out, out of the box. It was also pretty poor defensive discipline, not just from the defenders, but I think when Lucas Morris got the ball, both De Bruyne and Gundogan both mm-hmm. immediately chase out yeah. to, to, to try and close him down. And it's because uh, it does look like it's a sort of position where he would shoot, to be fair. And he's quite far out, but it does look like he's getting his body ready to shoot. But instead, he does that little chip ball to Bergwin, who's wide open. And also, Aurier and Son are also completely free on the left of the box mm-hmm. because both players have sort of abandoned their post on the edge of the box there. So that was a, that was a big issue for me as well. And on that second, that second goal, as you say, Otamendi going on a little adventure to go and pick up Lamella, giving Son basically a free hit. And to be fair, it did take quite a big deflection off of Fernandinho. Um, it looked like he was going for the other side of the goal, but it went, in, it went into uh, to the, uh, to the keeper's right in the end. Um, but both sort of sloppy defensive errors undisciplined I think is what I call it from both from both instances yeah yeah I, I would say so and then and then uh undisciplined meets clever moments the clever ball from Lucas Mora a, mm-hmm. a great ball from Mandelbele to set up on for that second goal and it's a strange situation of a game that easily could have been Man City 1-2-3-0 uh again no disrespect to Spurs but you easily could have seen it go that way instead it's 2-0 Spurs get a result that I think they desperately needed and now we have Man City falling further back and this feels like a game that last season if they had the kind of chemistry and camaraderie and motivation and energy and belief this ends up in a win for Spur- uh, for City excuse me but since they did not it does not and instead Liverpool extend their lead at the top of the table 22 points ahead of second place Man City um, and then I would I would say 24 points I believe my math is correct ahead of third place Leicester City and many many more points ahead of uh, fourth place Chelsea Leicester and Chelsea both played each other we're going to talk about that in a moment anything else you want to talk about from uh, City v Tottenham Ryan I think we covered it pretty well. Just We've to say that Liverpool, <laughs> Liverpool now need uh, 1.4 points per game on average. They can win the league at the Merseyside derby on March 15th. And uh, oh boy. here's to another, or here's to one certainly uncompetitive Premier League season where one team's been very good and the rest have been eh. Yep, that's about where we are. I would say Leicester have been uh, pretty consistent, but they were not sure. able to get all three points uh, this weekend. Leicester with a 2-2 home draw to Chelsea. And I want to start off by giving thumbs down to technical issues in this one. And not VAR, mind you. Uh, coming out of halftime, we only had the super wide-angle shot. I'm not entirely sure why. The commentators yeah. eventually apologized for it. But by the time it was dealt with, it was 1-1. One one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a strange one that we didn't really get any replays of Rudiger's goal. We didn't get any replays. Uh, plays at all of I forget who scored for Leicester for their first goal I have the notes in front of me I could stall for time Ryan do you have any thoughts on that one Barnes Harvey Barnes thank you very much Uh, (laughs) I have it in all caps with an exclamation point but yeah both of those uh very far away slightly difficult to see so I'm gonna say thumbs down to technical issues but I'll say I guess thumbs up to uh Rudiger for doing big things in this game yeah, exactly. Why, why uh, go and buy a centre forward when you've got a centre yeah. back who can perform like that? Two really, <laughs> really good headers as well. Yes. And as much as we can talk about Leicester conceding two goals from set pieces there, one from a corner, one from a, uh, one from a free kick, still very, very well taken from Rudiger. He's, he's, um, 
he's he's captain material, isn't he? He certainly isn't he captain is. Material. He's he's he, he's a very good player. I enjoy, enjoy him very much. Let's talk about uh, the Ford uh, situation you alluded to in a moment. But I, I wanted to highlight that second goal from Rudiger, mostly because it's Ben Showell marking Rudiger. There's a bit of a size mismatch there, but it's yeah. also Showell who had who had previously scored in this game, maybe feeling himself a little bit. Did not really cover himself in glory with the defending here because he's on Rudiger, and I think he he decides I'm just going to try to get in like away from Rudiger, but into a space where I can defend the ball. So he, as the ball's being taken, he sprints like five yards back and essentially allows Rudiger wide open space to kind of build that momentum, meet that ball, and I think that's a big reason why he gets the power he does behind it. So a great yeah. header from Rudiger for the second goal, a decent header for the first goal, some questionable de- defending from Ben Chilwell. Uh, in the lead up to that second goal, or I guess in directly before that second goal, but it was Rudiger getting the two goals. It was not very specifically Olivier Giroud uh, getting either goal or even being a part of this game. Uh, I don't really know what to make of this one. I have thoughts on Lampard's explanation for why Giroud wasn't involved, but Ryan, I'm wondering how surprised you were not to see the Frenchman in this one. I'm surprised that he's not being brought in because they clearly need at least a plan B. Up yeah. top, do they not? I mean, Tammy Abraham, he doesn't look fit. He looks, he's quite wasteful in this game. He, at times, he did look pretty exhausted. It seemed like, was Ross Barkley like a false nine at one point in this game? It Something seemed like, like that. They, they got some, they're not using. Well, Olivier Giroud is a World Cup winning forward, and maybe he doesn't play in the way that Lampard wants him to play, but he's one of those strikers who makes other players he raise their game. He makes other players look good. It doesn't matter that he's got a poor... He's, he's, he's not got very many goals in his last few appearances. I don't have the stats with me, but I feel like he, at this circumstance, in this point in time, when Chelsea don't have any other options up top, why not even put him in the squad? And why not have him as a super sub? Doesn't make any sense to me. I will give you the quote. Uh, Lampard insisted Giroud was not left out because he was concerned about his mental state after failing to secure a switch. Giroud wanted a move. He wants more game time in the lead-up mm. to the Euros. That did not materialize. Lampard said, quote, it was nothing to do with the frame of mind, uh, he, but he has had a few days where a lot of scrutiny has been on him and around him. I think it was the case of traveling without him. We will go away for a week from each other. It's probably what's needed for everyone, and we will come back and work hard, and Olivier is here. If he shows himself in training, because that is how I pick the team generally, then he will get his opportunities. First of all, Frank Lampard sounding like a non-native speaker with some of that phrasing. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the TLDR there is, I didn't want to pick him. Yeah, right. He's not said anything like, there. It's the only thing. And then the, the, like, if you want to maybe give him credit, it sounds like he said basically, it was nothing about his mental state, but he's come under a lot of scrutiny and there's been a lot of pressure on him. So it was a little about his mental state, is what that sounds like. <laughs> um, so I, I, I was equally confused by that one because it did seem like they really needed uh, the hold up play from Giroud, the aerial threat from Giroud, the scoring ability of Giroud. They did not get that. Instead, the change we did see was uh, Kepa going to the bench, Willy Caballero comes in, so a bold decision from Frank Lampard. Not entirely rewarded, because I would say Willy Caballero almost entirely at fault for the second goal for Leicester. Well, in the first goal for Leicester, with the Barnes, when he cuts in, he has that huge deflection. Mm-hmm. It made Caballero look bad, because yes. he sort of had to run back comically and try and catch out of his net. I think you could argue his positioning wasn't 100% right, but I think it made him look worse than he was. I, for the second goal... I, I, I was more I was more uh, unimpressed by the Chelsea backline to be honest. Because okay. when Tielemans puts the ball in across the box, mm-hmm. that's a slow traveling ball. He's not pumped it in very hard. No one's there to pick up Chilwell when he when he. Um, that's fair. He didn't have a black shirt near him. That he the, the the ball went completely across the box at a relatively slow speed, and he was able to pick it up there. And and, and what and you're gonna you're gonna put some blame on Caballero for that one too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, starting with the fact that this <laughs> entire sequence comes from Chelsea. Trying to possess the ball, they drop it all the way back to Caballero, who's not really under pressure, but the way the ball is played, he can't really do much with it, so he just hoofs it directly out of bounds. So that doesn't look very good because it's from that throw-in that leads mm. to the goal. But it's Caballero then, it's a bad ball in from Showell that Caballero goes to chase down, realizes he's not going to get it, tries to get back into position, but even when he does get back into goal, he is still in the six-yard box, so that's good. But he's definitely not able to get over to cover the near post, which is where the ball eventually goes in. And if he doesn't yeah. go off on that kind of wander for reasons, then he's in position to maybe cut the, up that ball in, as you mentioned, or at the very least be in position to block that shot at the near post and and uh, maybe turn it out for a corner, maybe clear it entirely. But that was, I think, some questionable goalkeeping and maybe not helping Frank Lampard's decision-making uh, all that much because uh, I did some, did some digging. Uh, Kepa has the 23rd worst save percentage in the Premier League, has had a few howlers, has not really... 
inspired confidence for Frank Lampard. There are reports that Kepa will be let go, that Frank Lampard wants somebody else. I don't know if that is the case. Maybe this was just a warning. But I think it maybe backfired a little bit for Frank Lampard in that it's not as though Caballero came in and stood on his head and, and then Kepa had to think like, okay, I really do need to be better. Instead, of your Kepa sitting on the bench, you might think like, really? That's the guy? Yeah. All right. Okay. If that's what you want to do, then I will sit here and collect my money. But when you're 23rd worst in a 20-team league, that's not great. <laughs> that's it? not great. No, it's not. <laughs> well, uh, as much as we've dug out Lampard for maybe um, not including Giroud in the squad, I, mm-hmm. I, I think you should give him credit for this because that's a really hard decision to make to replace your number one keeper, to replace the most expensive keeper in the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that's a bold decision that he's made there. Lampard has a big willy and he's not afraid to show it. <laughs> I got concerned for a minute. I was like, wow, Ryan's, Ryan's going blue. And then I realized what you were doing. Well done, sir. And I, I suppose you're right that like if, if it ends up being the case, let's say Kepa comes back in and does become a key performer for Lampard, then you could point to that as saying, like, okay, this is the wake-up call. Like, this is what got him going. If he doesn't and Caballero remains the starter and then they move it on, then you look at this as like, yeah, Lampard's not afraid to make decisions that mean his means one of his most expensive players isn't involved. I suppose you're correct. It, we'll just see how it ends up playing out because if Kepa comes back in and continues to struggle and then Caballero gets another start a couple weeks from now, then it looks more like indecision to me. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And um, time will tell because, both, as you say, both players have shown their uh, inconsistencies in these past few weeks. Yes. Uh, the final thing I wanted to note on this game, uh, because we've talked a bit about Chelsea, I did just want to highlight uh, some of the players for Leicester because in the lead-up to that first goal, uh, I was really impressed by the movement of James Madison. We've talked about him many, many, many times. But also, he kind of drops in to receive a ball from Chowdhury, and as he moves in, you see Tielemans make this kind of diagonal run to get into roughly the space where James Madison had been, like on the same lateral, essentially. He's like 20 yards up the field, but when Madison drops in, then you see... Tielemans fill that spot. Jorginho, to his credit, tries to track that, but it's just such a like calculated run at the exact same time in the exact same sequence that it opens up all this space. And it's a, I think Madison splits three players with his pass in, and then Tielemans turns and splits three players with his pass to Harvey, uh, to ben, or Harvey Barnes, excuse me, who then dribbles in, gets that goal, as you said. But th- that sort of like midfield chemistry is, I think, a huge reason why Leicester have been able to have the success they have. So just a little bit of credit there for Leicester uh, doing exciting things and playing very good soccer. Yeah, Taylor, this is awkward. I don't, you didn't get the memo. You're not supposed to credit James Madison anymore. It's all about Jack Grealish now. I don't know oh, if you heard. There's, there's a new, there's a new, <laughs> new sheriff in town when it comes to uh, English attacking midfielders. One more thing can I ask mm-hmm. about, this, about this game? The penalty potential call in the 95th yes. minute when this mm-hmm. game is at 2-2. The game's hero, Anthony Rudiger, uh, has a, there's a cross coming in and the ball, he puts his hands behind his back but the, ha- the ball hits his right hand it does. as it comes in. So how do you feel about that? Because he's evidently trying to get his hands out of the way, but in doing mm-hmm. so, put his hands literally in the path of the ball. I think it's especially confusing. I think it's correctly not given, but I think it looks especially bad because he's has his hands behind his back, but as defenders do, I'm acting this out, people can't see it, but he's holding one like wrist with the other. He's holding his right wrist with his left hand, so yeah. that extends his right hand out, which is why when you watch the replay, it looks like he's almost intentionally like stuck his right fingers out to make contact with the ball. But I do think it's just kind of the shape he's put himself in to defend without potentially risking a handball, which you could argue with the new rules he doesn't really need to do because if it goes ball to hand, we've seen that not given time and time again. So maybe defenders can cut that out a little bit. But there is that contact on the hand, but I think because he really doesn't know it at all, like the ball's going behind him, I think he doesn't mean to do it. It's not an intentional thing. He's not trying to block the pass off or anything like that. So I understand why Leicester fans might feel slightly hard done by that one, but I think it is the correct decision uh, overall. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. But also, on the other hand, seen him given. And this is, a, this is another example of Ryan doesn't understand the rules of soccer anymore because I've seen him given. There, there, there are a few of those. There are a few of those in the Premier League. So maybe we should just stop talking about the Premier League and then we won't have to worry about it. Let's talk about some other leagues. But first, let's talk about today's sponsor, Policy Genius. Uh, the year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted that by now we'd be teleporting to work or living on Mars. Hover cars. I feel like I saw a lot of hover cars as a child that has yet to materialize. Uh, and just like hover cars uh, being predicted, a lot of those other predictions were wrong. The truth is we'll always get the future wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right, that's where Policy Genius can help. 
It can help indeed. Policy Genius helps. Uh, it makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In mm-hmm. minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could say $1,500 e-dues or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. And it says one thing I hate in this world, T-Rock. What's that? It's paperwork and red tape. You do have that rule in your house, right? That there's no red tape allowed in the house at all? Yeah, so when I when I do work and construction, whatever, blue tape only. <laughs> I think that's a fair that's a fair uh, policy to take, and I'm sure Policy Genius would appreciate that. Uh, so if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at PolicyGenius.com. And that is the case. It, it can be stressful. You don't have a bunch of forms to fill out. You're not going to have massive questionnaires that take the entire day. Instead, just go to Policy Genius. They'll always get the, the future as right as they can is how I'm going to say that one because we're always going to predict it wrong, but they could at least get life insurance right. So thank you to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you to Ryan for having the no red tape policy. I do appreciate that. Uh, thank you to La Liga for being an exciting league uh, to watch. Let's move there, shall we, Ryan? Uh, good, seg, f- good seg. Good seg. I try. I try. Ansu Fati uh, became the youngest player to get a brace in La Liga in the 21st century, I should add. I kept seeing those sort of little disclaimers added to it. Uh, but he gets the brace in Barcelona's 2-1 win over Levante. Uh, both goals assisted by Lionel Messi. The first one, if people haven't seen it, is a thing of, of beauty and speed. It's a great ball in from Lionel Messi. Ansu Fati outruns the defender, gets on the end of it, and then finishes calmly, which was very much necessary since uh, Levante do get the late goal. If it had been 1-1, they would have dropped uh, even more points. Instead, they pick up three, uh, which was good because Real Madrid Madrid on Saturday uh, had gone six point clear at the top of the table uh, in their 1-0 win over Atletico Madrid. I believe that was their first win at home against Diego Simeone's side since 2012, at the very least in the league, league, um, and showed the, I would say, the disparate situations of those two clubs. Uh, Let's start with Real Madrid, and more specifically, let's start with Zinedine Zidane, who made some changes, got the results. In terms of the games we're going to be talking about uh, for the rest of this show in Spain and in Germany... I do think it was kind of the tale of managers making changes, making smart tactical decisions and getting things right. And I think that is very much the case for Zidane in this one. Yeah, definitely. And I think, as you say, there were disparate fortunes of these two Madrid teams. And I think a lot of that is down to the respective managers. And I'll give a thumbs up to Zinedine Mm -hmm. Zidane for this one. I don't think he gets enough credit, certainly not from from the Bailey household, uh, for his his tactical nails. And I think I I had a bit of an awakening about this Real Madrid team in the... As much as you can call them sleepers, maybe they are sleepers. They're very well drilled. They fight for every ball. There's no aimless passing. You know, there's loads of movement. Sergio Ramos is getting up the field and having shots all the time. I just imagine this team watching Manchester City and thinking, you know, we've got Kroos and Mm -hmm. Valverde and Casemiro. We're going to make easy work of this City team at the moment. I think, you know, they've got a lot of momentum at the moment. And a lot of that is down to Zidane. And... He made two particular changes here. He he put on he switched to a four three three and put on two wingers and you know Isco and Vasquez um, for for Kroos and uh, Kroos coming on and Vinicius. Um, uh, yeah, Vin- Vinicius and uh, Lucas Vasquez, Vasquez coming sorry, on. Yeah. Kroos always and... going Kroos. Yeah, there you go. You got mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, but put his, uh, um, these two sort of wide players on. It completely changed the game. Yep. And he's he's great at doing that. And you know m- these mid game changes. Perhaps I was thinking about this. Maybe it came from his time as a player. Well, you have to sort of adapt to mm-hmm. mid-game, and that's maybe nonsense because he's probably had to adapt to that as a manager as well. But no, I, th- I know. I think I think you're you're probably not wrong there in terms of the position he plays allows him to kind of understand or played rather allows him to understand the flow of the game and how you've got to adjust things. But I also think him coming back to Real Madrid as sort of a like won them uh, won three Champions League titles. He leaves, then everything kind of goes crazy. Now he's brought back in to stabilize everything, and I think with that comes the kind of confidence in knowing that, like, yeah, I am backed. It doesn't really matter what I do because they're not going to sack me because that didn't work out previously. (laughs) Uh, And I think similar to what we talked about with Frank Lampard, where I think he has the kind of confidence in his situation and his position to know he can make some changes, make some decisions that maybe a uh, manager in a more precarious position would be hesitant to make. Here's Zidane at halftime recognizes this isn't working. We're losing the ball too often. We're being too direct without really having any options. They kept looking long for Kareem Benzema in a foot race. Yeah. Kareem Benzema is a great forward. He is not going to win you many foot races. So those tactical little adjustments you mentioned 
are massively important because instead of having this kind of stodgy midfield battle where they keep trying to pass the ball through and pass the ball through, instead, you've got some wide attackers. And in this case, it's Vinicius gets the ball, is really patient, plays a lovely ball that like to completely destroys uh, two Atleti defenders uh, f- uh, for Ferland Mendy to get on the end of. It's a great ball in. It's a lovely finish from Karim Benzema. But it's the adjustments that uh, Zinedine Zidane makes at halftime that really exploit the issues uh, on hand for Atleti. Yeah, definitely. When you've got Vinicius and Mendy yeah. combining like that, who needs Marcelo? It's fantastic, <laughs> fantastic stuff. And, uh, there was a line in Sid Lowe's match report from this where he, he, he made the contrast between Simeone and Zidane, saying words to the effect of, Zidane has made this Real team, and Simeone's team is no longer what he made them. That is, yeah, that. that's a great line, and is is pretty accurate, right? Uh, I do yeah. want to talk about Simeone. Uh, is there anybody else you want to talk about with Real Madrid and the performances you saw from them? Uh, Valverde. We've got to call okay. out Valverde. He was mm-hmm. unreal in this game, wasn't he? And I think he's just one of those players who epitomizes how good this Real Madrid, Real Madrid team is. In the, you know, I said they're well drilled and they fight for everything, and nothing nothing is unintentional in this team. He wins every 50-50. He's great. He runs so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he's 21 years old and he plays like he's been in this team for 10 years. He, he's the sort of person, he, he, he'd die for this team, it looks like. I mean, and it's, he's it's all, incredibly he's already... telling that he stays on the field and it's Isco and Cruz who come off. Right, I'll say right. that much. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, he's already a god in those parts for, for, for that tactical foul in the Super Cup against yep. uh, Atletico. And, you know, I think he added to his credibility in this game uh, as well. And I, I think... In, in many ways, he's like an N'Golo Kante. He's he's like a rash. He's mm-hmm. all over players. He wins every he wins every loose ball, and he just he's tireless. And I know he's he's got some different dynamics going on from Kante, but do you see the comparison there? I do. I, I in the sense that I think it's it's consistent uh, positivity in uh, N'Golo Kante with the smiles, Valverde just with the the energy that I think kind of uh, bleeds into his teammates in that I think you, if you're playing with somebody who's high energy, high octane, and you feel like you're being a little bit sluggish, that can pull out a little bit more energy from you. So I see it there, but I see the willingness to sacrifice, the willingness to kind of do whatever is needed to be done to make the team better, and I see that connection as well. And then I just see the kind of no-nonsense style of play that, yeah, I think has uh, become very representative of N'Golo Kante, and I think is starting to be very representative of uh, Federico Valverde. Very, very good. Yeah, very good. And I don't know, I just think this whole, I'm just very impressed with this Real Madrid mm-hmm. team right now, and I think they will cruise through in the Champions League at this kind of uh, rate. You know, they're undefeated in all competitions since October. Uh, to quote Ray Hudson from his broadcast, Real Madrid oh haven't lost since Nor was finishing the arc. <laughs> Oh Ray. Ray, Ray had some uh, some choice moments this weekend. He had he had lots of thoughts on the on the Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, you can go find those if you so choose. Uh, but oh let's boy, talk- I, I, don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't think they're going to be very woke, are they? You are correct. Uh, let's <laughs> let's let's talk about Atleti for a moment. Uh, do you still have that quote in front of you? Because uh, I think yeah. it's a very accurate and devastating depiction of where Atleti are at the moment. Yeah, so the, the quote to reiterate was that Zinedine Zidane has made this Real Madrid team. Mm. This is a paraphrase of the quote. That he's made this Real Madrid team. That Simeone, uh, uh, he's no, that his team are no longer what he made them, yeah. essentially. And, and, and I think that the very damning but accurate uh, point that, that Sidlow was making in that one, I read that one as well, and I think his, uh, his La Liga podcast uh, partner also had a great write-up for ESPN, where they sort of made the same point, shocking that uh, podcast partners would come to the same conclusions, which is essentially that, like, Atleti used to be about fight, that like you kind of knew that they were always going to battle, that they were never going to give up. And it was that relentlessness that made them so difficult. Because if you're Real Madrid and something's not working and you make the adjustment that Zidane made, in the past, it's still going to be Atleti working just as hard, never giving up, having players who can come in and kind of fill the roles that they need once there are some tired legs. And they end up frustrating, and it's why they've been so successful against Real Madrid. I think another point Sidlo was making was that like these games are never pretty. They're always ugly. This was no exception, but it was uglier to a different level because it was Atleti sort of starting to lose belief. And you could see that as this game went on, there was less intensity. There was less discipline. They didn't have the the subs. They didn't have the bench, certainly, to come in and no. kind of rejuvenate the squad. And with that went the sort, that sort of belief. And, like, Simeone knows all things. And as soon as you start to look at that team and think, like, oh, they're not that motivated. Oh, they're not really fighting anymore. What does that say about the man whose entire, like, sort of reputation within that club has been he instills fight and confidence? I'm not saying that Simeone needs to go. I think that that talk is very premature. But you do understand why those rumblings are beginning. 
I think we're reaching the end of the Simeone arc at Atletico, certainly. Do you really? Because I think because of everything you've said there, because they don't have the fight, I think mm-hmm. the word I'd use about this performance was toothless. And that's not something you'd associate with the Simeone side, traditionally. Uh, toothless, you know, Lamar wasn't great in this one again. Thomas Partey in the, mid- in the middle of the field. Laurenti, not great. The, sort of the, the midfield engines that you're used to seeing in this team weren't doing much and up front Morata you know w- yeah. when he was when he came off you know they didn't have much they're clearly missing Diego Costa Joao Felix wasn't available for yeah, this I, one I, but I got the list for you uh Jimenez Felix Costa Arias uh Coque Trippier uh all missing Carrasco back yes but Edson Cavani not brought in then you have the injury to Alvaro Morata lots of uh concerns lots of players missing uh for Atleti that definitely didn't help their result on this one yeah definitely and I'll just add on the Trippier and no Gareth Bale either I think this is a, a post-Brexit reaction from <laughs> it's punishment it's punishment and justifiably so totally deserve it (laughs) so i guess we'll just have to keep an eye on how things progress for atleti maybe it is the kind of new style that timmy was trying to bring in combined with some of the new players combined with some of the injuries maybe it's all just a bit confusing right now we'll see how the rest of the season plays out and if it is the beginning of the end if so i'm sure there will be some clubs who are more than a little interested in his uh services i don't know how many of them will be in the bundesliga which is where we're going to head next uh weston mckinney returned for schalke and their nil-nil draw with the newly rich hertha berlin so a decent result there but nil-nil we're not going to talk about that uh instead let's first talk about leipzig's come from behind 2-2 draw with uh bruzia munchen gladbach this game was one that I was sort of like, okay, I'm going to watch like bits and pieces. I want to get a feel for sort of what happened. I ended up watching the entire game because it was really, really interesting to me from start to finish. It was another game when the managers played a massive role. I know that's a silly thing to say about a game like this where it's like the managers were important. Can you believe it, Ryan? But the way <laughs> they both approached this one, uh, specifically Marco Rosa in the first half for Gladbach and then Julian Nagelsmann in the second for Leipzig, uh, the way they were able to adjust and kind of really cause big problems for their opponent, I found especially captivating. So I want to start by giving thumbs up to Marco Rosa, who sprung a surprise on Leipzig. Uh, they went with a 3-4-1-2, which gave them lots of numbers in the middle to combat what I think he thought was going to be Leipzig's approach, that 4-2-2-2. Um, but then it also gave them really aggressive wingbacks. So even when they were kind of stymied in the middle, because Leipzig would end up being kind of narrow, uh, Leipzig in more of a 4-2-3-1, but those three stayed compact, the two in the middle stayed compact. So so there was always space out wide. And really, the first half was all about Leipzig trying to figure out how to play through that and pretty much failing. So I think you have to give credit to Marco Rosa and Gladbach, and especially so since at halftime it was 2 0. Do you give a lack of credit to Nagelsmann for abandoning 4 2 2 2 2 2 2 2 2 then and going with the 4 2 3 1 instead? Because I thought that, you know, this, this is the first time in a while I can remember them not playing that. Mm-hmm. And that seems that's like the Nagelsmann formation, right? So he, yeah. and they looked a bit sl- a, a bit sloppy in this game. They made lots of mistakes, and I wonder if that's down to uh, set up in any way. I think it, I think it is because it it also is the case that those mistakes were very very costly. I mean, the second goal is the prime example of this. It's Leipzig trying to play the ball out, but they keep not having options forward. I think again, yeah, because they're it's just Timo Werner up top by himself. He worked very very hard, but was struggling to kind of create and struggling to connect with that midfield for the reasons I've already mentioned. And so instead the ball keeps going back and back and back and back and eventually uh, it's with I think Clusterman who tries to play a like 40 yard driven pass that uh, instead of finding his teammate, uh, finds the opposition. I believe it's Jonas uh, Hoffman who, uh, excuse me, Newhouse basically is there one times it into the feet of Jonas Hoffman who cuts yeah. across one defender, puts it in the back of the net. But it's sort of Leipzig playing right into the hands of Gladbach who then punished them accordingly. That was, I think, very representative of the way that first half went. And even the first goal, you see the kind of counterattack, uh, Gladbach wide, they pull Leipzig out of position. And then the way they scored this goal is sort of what we've come to expect from Man City in that it was like a, 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 a counterattack wide, a pass, a pass across the front of goal, and then when you think that player is going to shoot, instead it's laid off for plie to finish. A great ball from Went, great awareness. But that just sort of like uh, bing, 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 moving Leipzig all around, exemplified by uh, Mukiele, the uh, right back, I believe, for Leipzig, falling yeah. over, trying to get back up, and then facing the wrong way because he had <laughs> no idea where the ball was at that moment. That think, um... really shows you the confusion. 
Yeah, you might be doing a disservice to that, comparing it to City there, because I thought that was more of a PlayStation goal. That was a really good team goal, wasn't it? That was sort of Arsene Wenger, it really was. Arsenal kind of, the way that ball mm-hmm. went, and they passed it around. And I think Leipzig making a mistake there, because they were, they were all sitting way too deep in the box as well for that one. Absolutely. And so yeah. we, we similar to the Madrid game, we have uh, halftime. Julian Nagelsmann makes, deci- makes it like decisive action, pulls off Mukiele, pulls off Forsberg, who had been very bad, uh, could not find pass gave the ball away a lot, tried to force things through the middle. That did not work. Instead, on come Patrick Schick and Eunice Poulsen. Uh, so you have a more familiar shape. You have more outlets up top. Uh, Tyler Adams goes from center midfield to right back, but still ends up playing very central a lot of the time. So you still have numbers in the middle, but now you have outlets up top, and you yeah. can sort of see the change that comes about as a result, even though I would say Gladbach didn't really help themselves by some of the decisions in this one, especially for Leipzig's first goal. Poor old Jan Sommer. He got the uh, Larice Tangunga Award for a calamity of the weekend, didn't he? Uh, he spilled. He jumped up and sort of uh, fell over his own defender. He did. Uh, it would be a foul if it was an attacking player. It was his own defender. It yeah. was. Oh, it, it's the, the way when you watch it in slow motion, the way the ball goes out of, out of Sommer's hands. It's like that Simpsons quote when if he's freeze framing, you can see the exact moment where his heart breaks. It kind of felt like that to me. And, no, you, uh, dude, you're totally right because you see, it is like a story of three freeze frames because he comes out and collects that one, and I was like, all right, Summer, yeah. like getting after it, you are far off your line and high in the air, and that could be okay. No, now it's risky because yeah. the second freeze frame is him sort of <laughs> hurtling back to earth head first with the ball out in front, and you think there you're probably not going to be able to hold that one. And then the, f- the third freeze frame would him be like forlornly looking at the referee and realizing, as you said, it's his own player that he made contact with, which is why he dropped the ball. So yeah. he had that moment of like, oh, it was a foul. Re- oh, no, it's my own player. That's not going to work. And uh, yeah, Aww. I think you could see those three moments very clearly. I love that analogy, Ryan. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah, and you open, of course, obviously, um, the substitute Schick getting mm-hmm. uh, poaching the goal there. Great Geschick from Schick. German language joke for you there. I, I appreciate your German language joke. I appreciated Schick's goal because, uh, like, in contrast with uh, who I was talking about earlier, uh, uh, Muriel Amukele, excuse me, who, like, completely lost track of the ball when he was kind of torn all over the place. Instead, here, Schick is so aware. It's, it's to his credit that he's kind of avoids that contact with Summer, but then is alive to the ball, and it's mm-hmm. his first touch, passes into the net, and it's 2-1. to one. And that's sort of uh, a, a big mistake for Gladbach. And then I would say an even bigger mistake comes from Plie, who scores the, the uh, first goal for, for Gladbach and then decides to follow that up by, I guess, yelling at the referee a whole bunch and ends up getting sent off. Probably not what Gladbach were hoping for in that one. The old double booking. Yeah. The old uh, booking 30 seconds after the previous booking. Gotta love it. Gotta love it, haven't you? I mean, I'd I, love to know. I, this is one why I want to hear referees mic'd up, because I'd want to know what happens in these circumstances. We'd learn so much more. We really would. And the commentators I, were, were, I think, felt that this was a bit harsh, that to kind of give the, the second yellow, give that red card, it kind of destroys the way the game was going. I understand where that belief comes from, but for me, it sort of is like, Plie stops in the middle of a sequence because he feels like the foul should have been given. It wasn't given. If you want to argue that, you can argue that. But to stop the play, turn, and start screaming at the referee, he's obviously not using the nicest terms. Referee comes over, (laughs) gives him the yellow, and similar to Neymar at the very beginning of this one, I think part of that was like, hey, you got to calm down a little bit. Like, I can't let this game get out of control. And Plie very clearly responds by cursing right back at him as he walks away Mm -hmm. in a pretty aggressive way. And if you're the referee... You've already given one yellow for dissent. I guess you're going to make that stand and give two. But now you've got Gladbach down to 10 men. And now it really is like kind of all the momentum is with Leipzig. Uh, Leipzig make another change. That's when Tyler Adams comes out, I think, because Nagelsmann thinks, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and commit some numbers in a midfield, commit some numbers forward. Um, they still don't get many uncontested chances. They don't get many clear-cut opportunities, which is why that goal is all the more remarkable. Ryan, can you please talk about that goal from Christopher and Cuckoo? Two words, Bobby Dazzler. That's what we call that in England. <laughs> what a hit from Cuckoo there. Just, what was mm-hmm. it about? Are we saying 30 yards from that one? Something like that. Man, does he hit that ball. Even if it's only like 25, he still hits it from a relatively stationary position with lots yeah. of bodies in front of him. It's an incredible hit. It looks like because the speed the ball travels, it doesn't look like he's had the, build, the physical no. build-up to hit it that hard. That's no, it what's most impressive about it. It's a very, very good shot. It looks um, like, do you, you know the, 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 uh, the roller coasters that like, you have the ones that go up the hill and it's like clinky, 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 and then they roll down and that's where the speed comes from. And then you have the ones that just launch from nowhere and you don't see it coming. That's what the shot was like. It was just yeah, sprung ones. from his foot flying. 
<laughs> he is the Hulk ride at Orlando in, in the Universal Studios. He there we just go. shot straight out of the gate. There we go. Well done, Ryan. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I, I, I know Gladbach did not appreciate that goal. And I will say, like, it is sort of commiserations to them because, to their credit, they were making it really hard for Leipzig to get like clear-cut opportunities. Instead, Leipzig were kind of routinely settling for shots from distance, and it felt like, oh, here comes another one. And in this case, it was just an amazingly well-hit ball that found the back of the net that gave Leipzig uh, that one or two-two draw, one point when it looked like they were going to get zero. Yeah, um, uh, maybe you've got to blame that red card though at the end of the day for the equalizer because uh, the player was very unbalanced, which is not good for a plié. Unbalanced wow. plié. No, I mean, anyway. I, I appreciate I appreciate the dedication you have to finding the humor in these moments, Ryan. I appreciate that. I don't know well, if I would extend that courtesy to Daryl Grove, though. I feel like I would just stare at him blankly. Uh, and to be fair, I didn't really laugh out loud there. So I'll just laugh now. Ha 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 ha. There's Ouch. my laughter for you. Ouch, my pride. <laughs> well, what I will say about this game was I thought this is an exciting one going into it because this, is ma- this was match day 20 in the Bundesliga. It was a top-of-the-table mm-hmm. clash that didn't involve Bayern yep. Munich. And the result of that game? Bayern Munich going top. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, Bayern Munich, top of the table after their 3-1 win on the road at Mainz. Uh, They're now one point ahead of Leipzig, three ahead of Gladbach, but only two ahead of Borussia Dortmund, who clobbered uh, Union Berlin, or Union, but I'm going to call them Union. Uh, This game was weird. Uh, And I'm giving thumbs up to uh, the lines of a certain white powder that I have to believe Dortmund seem to randomly utilize. That's my new belief, is that when they cut away for a replay, all the Dortmund players run over, uh, you know, they maybe uh, have a little bump, and then they come running back on, because this game was sort of like, started at a fever pitch, dropped off, then Dortmund scored two goals, and they sort of like ramp up the intensity, and they're like crazy attacking, they're sending everybody forward, and then it drops off a little bit, there's a little bit of a lull, and then they kind of ramp it back up and score three more goals real fast. And it, it was just a strange game in that it could have been Dortmund 5 or 6 nil, like after 40 minutes, and it still finishes 5 nil. but it took them later into the second half to find a way to make all five goals happen. Another impressive Borussia Dortmund uh, display, as you say. Uh, they only score five goals in games in 2020 now, it appears, mm-hmm. because that's what they keep doing. That's the rule. You mentioned the, uh, the substance. Um, yeah. There is a shot on Twitter, a video I watched before we came on today, of uh, Haaland on the bench drinking from what looks like a yeah. test tube. Yeah. Was it a black test tube at that? A black test tube. I that's think suspicious. What was in there? Magical Harland potion. <laughs> that's what was in there because uh, that guy is on fire. Uh, he's played 136 minutes mm-hmm. for Borussia Dortmund. He's got seven goals in those 136 minutes. He's averaging one about every 19 minutes. He's uh, eight yeah. shots he's had and he scored seven goals. That is and ridiculous. And he won, he won the penalty in this game as well, which Michael Royce put away. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe Harland should have taken that. He's quite good at penalties as well. But I wouldn't have minded that. I mean, obviously thumbs up to to Haaland, but also to his supporting casting because Sancho was unreal in this game again as well. And Julian Brandt. Mm -hmm. I've got to give credit to Julian Brandt in particular in this game because for the second goal where Haaland sort of... um, he got he got on the end of that cross. It was a really good cross from Julian Brandt that came in. Yes, it and was. he's 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 crossing like a world class winger, Julian Brandt there, and he's you know that's not, not his key position. And also he had the back heel for for mm-hmm. Holland's uh, for the fifth goal. Yep. Uh, was that him? That was Julian Brandt, wasn't it? It yeah, was. It was. Yeah, the little back, like Cruyff back heel sort of thing. That was just perfect. Yep. And I know you love looking at player celebrations. Mm-hmm. Look at look again at Julian Brandt after that goal goes in. He just stands still. He looks like the most disappointed man in the world. Whereas Haaland's going nuts, and I can't <laughs> quite figure out why because he's just done something unbelievably skillful. Maybe he was thinking he could have turned the defender and gone and had a shot himself. That might but, have been uh, it. Yeah, but, but, but maybe that was it. But full credit to, to Julian Brandt there. But going back to Haaland as well. Can I, can I jump in there for a moment on Brandt? Yeah, uh, just to say, as, as the, uh, the German commentator, his name I forget, uh, made abundantly clear several times over, uh, Julian Brandt playing in, this was more of a like 3-4, like a pretty much straight up 3-4-3 for Dortmund. Julian mm-hmm. Brandt was one of the midfield two alongside, alongside Axel Witzel, and that is not his position. He is not a, a deep-lying playmaker. He is not a number six. He is not trying to stay deep. And so it is to his credit that he played that position very well in this game, yet still managed to find space and uh, managed to be deadly, managed to create opportunities. Dortmund did bring Emre Jean. You would assume that he would kind of fit that spot more, but I still think, based on this performance, based on what we've seen from him previously, we'll continue to see Julian Brandt maybe in that spot, maybe wide, maybe as a a second striker if they change the formation up a little bit but he certainly did nothing to uh, hurt his chances of continuing to get uh, selected he's a great he's a great weapon um, mm-hmm. very very much um, appreciate him and I don't, have i told my told you my Julian brand story about when i met him no so i went to see by leverkusen train in orlando i think two years ago 
And uh, I was, I'd set up an interview with him, with the club. And this, I was like, does he speak English? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure, you, you'll be fine. I was like, oh, good, good. Went and talked to him. Wouldn't speak English. What? So I had to conduct the whole um, interview in broken German, which it went better than I thought it would, but it was one of those panic moments in my career where I was like, oh, God, what am I going to say to this man in a different language? But it was, um, he, he was very nice, and he looks like he's about 15 years old. Um, that's another story altogether. Here is- he was... He was um, he was brilliant in this game. Uh, Sancho was great as well. I think he's on twelve assists and twelve goals for this season. He was he's he's just unplayable. And I think I wonder whether the arrival of Haaland may have changed Sancho's outlook, whether wanting to leave yeah. Dortmund or not. Because if I was him and I saw the sort of chemistry this team has right now, I'd be thinking. I could stay here for a year or two and try and win some things and score five goals every game. That would be a great pleasure for me. I agree um, entirely because it, with Holland, it's not just that he's sitting up top waiting for the ball to come into him. He's not just sort of some poacher or predatory striker. His movement is excellent. He drops in to link up play to pull defenders out of position to open up space for other players. He'll drift to one side, then pull that defender over to the other side to open up space for Jaden Sancho on a number of occasions. But his positioning is intelligent. I think for one oh, for the goal uh, where Julian Brandt has has that sort of uh, reverse instep step turn sort of thing, Holland never really changes his pace. He just keeps adjusting. He starts at like midfield thereabouts, and as he's running in, he just kind of keeps slowly adjusting to where he is able to find a little pocket of space, and that's when he gets that goal. Yeah. But it's all of those little things, I think, really facilitate better, stronger, more successful attacks. And so to your point, yeah, I think that if you're, if you're Jaden Sancho and maybe you're looking at some of your potential suitors and seeing their at best, inconsistent uh, results. And then you look at your current Dortmund team, who I think are one of the most exciting teams that you could watch right now. I don't know why you would leave that, and I don't think he will maybe want to, at least not right now. Yeah, and I think they are the most exciting team right now. Sorry, Liverpool. I think they are because they've also got loads of peril at the back, which is very entertaining. I'm glad you emphasized that because I had the exact same <laughs> thought. Ryan had posed this question of, like, are they the most exciting team right now? My answer was yes, and I should add, uh, it was specifically because they make weird errors, they have defensive lapses, that makes them that much more exciting because you never know what's going to happen at either end of the field. Yeah, exactly. I think that makes it more interesting and it makes it more fun to watch, particularly for a neutral. They're definitely the best team for a neutral in the world, I'd say that. And just going back to Harlem one more time, mm-hmm. you mentioned about Please. his movement there. I think that's what really makes him special. If you look at that second goal when the aforementioned brilliant cross comes in from Brandt and he sort of taps it in, yep. it looks like a fairly simple striker's tapping. But you look at his off-the-ball mm-hmm. movement and all the defenders there, they're just waiting for the ball to come in. And he's, he's done some Thomas Muller Raumdeutering there, and he's found the space. <laughs> and I think he's done very well. He shows, he's got such good reactions. He's got such good reflexes that he's able to find the space. That is such a difficult art. Mm-hmm. And Mar- Marvin I, Friedrich, by the way, was the one who was desperately trying to stay with Holland. And I think because he was so focused on tracking him, it made it right. strangely easier for Holland to then dictate the entire course of events that led to him being wide open with Friedrich sort of looking on helplessly. But there was something about that move. I don't know whether it was his uh, Haaland's body language or the way mm-hmm. he found the space or the way he poached. It felt like Brazilian Ronaldo to me. Really? A little bit. I, ooh, I like that. I, I, I like that comparison. That makes me happy to... Anytime there's a possibility that we have another Brazilian Ronaldo running around doing things, I get very excited. If, if Haaland cuts his head into a triangle or his haircut into a triangle, <laughs> I'm going to be extra excited. Oh my gosh, that would be even more terrifying than he looks currently. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a terrifying prospect. Uh, to, but I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, to, to wrap up, I think this, mm. this Dortmund team is very exciting. Haaland's a big part of it. He obviously can't keep up this pace forever, but I'm just looking forward to watching him develop because he's still pretty young. And uh, and this is this is a great example of how so many teams in the Bundesliga, they have a, a bad, you know, it's a, it's a season of two halves. You mm. see Bayern Munich last season having a bad uh, Hinrunder and then really bossing it in the Rookrunder. It looks like Dortmund are set up to do the same thing because it wasn't that long ago that Lucien Favre's job looked mm-hmm. in big trouble. They couldn't find the net. They were getting lots of draws and it was, it was all very disappointing. And now it couldn't be more different. So you say that <laughs> and then uh, Lucien Favre, this is the frustrating thing about him is he, he, he has Holland playing really well. He's got Dortmund humming. They're scoring goals. Um, he played Gio Reyna in this one. Gio Reyna is the, uh, the third sub. He, he gets a few minutes. He looks fine on the ball. He, he had a few moments of like attacking creativity. He uh, subs on for Holland, stayed central in the attack, and that was exciting, moved around a lot. I think was a little bit of a victim of they were up 5-0. And so I think everybody was trying to get scoring opportunities. So he sort of filled in where he needed to while other people went forward. Mm. But I want to add that 
If you look at uh, Royce's reaction when he's substituted and Hakimi's reaction when he's substituted, maybe it's just that they're annoyed that they are being pulled off in a game that they're winning and feeling confident. But Hakimi is furious, refuses to acknowledge Favre, walks past him, takes his shoes off, throws it on the ground, kicks a water bottle. Uh, Royce does the same thing. He slowly trudges off the field avoids Favre doesn't like Favre like tries to stop him and have a word Royce just says something as he walks past him and then continues on doesn't really give anybody high fives slumps down on the bench and it was just like there's that line there's that weird line where it's like I can't tell if this is just frustration because they're competitors and they want to stay on the field versus I'm annoyed because I don't think you know what you're doing and I don't really like you as a manager and I'm honestly not sure which one of those was the situation here maybe a little from column so I guess I'm leaving it to you to answer Ryan tell me which one it was I think it's. I think it could be both, but I think while you're winning and while you're playing fantastically, it's a less of a pressing concern. That's probably fair. That's probably fair. All right. So uh, I think the biggest pressing concern in this one was that Gio Reyna uh, needed to get minutes and did get minutes, and that's what we all care about, right, Ryan? Thirteen of them. They were beautiful. <laughs> uh, yes. So well done, uh, Borussia Dortmund. I do think we maybe are going to see Leipzig stay where they are, but maybe slip a, a little bit. I think the same goes for Gladbach. I think they'd slip a little bit more. So it does feel like it's going to be a Bayern Munich versus Borussia Dortmund title race. I could be totally wrong, and Leipzig will end up being this efficient juggernaut. But we'll have to see, and we'll if that ends up being the case, we'll probably talk about it on some more weekend review shows. But for now, Ryan, we've talked in depth about five, six, five games, five games from the weekend. Uh, anything else you wanted to discuss before we call it a day? Let's let the people get on with their lives. We've talked enough to them today, Tay-Tay. We certainly have. Then, Ryan Bailey, I would just like to say thank you very much for watching all these games and talking about all the soccer. Always a pleasure, never a chore. 